Welcome to Low Visibility, the podcast that can't see through its cool-looking helmet. I am Matt Comics, and with me, as always, is the ever-lovely Linksera. And today, we're going to be reviewing a show that is actually, uh, I would say, near and dearer to our hearts. Um, it's one of our favorites in the Common Rider franchise. Uh, the one, the only, the immortal Common Rider Black. Yeah, and just for historical context, this was the first Rider show of any kind that I saw. I think just given our ages, uh, which I won't get out in the show, but won't be hard to guess, uh, if you were getting into Toku around the time we were, this was the most recent Rider show anyone told you to watch. At the time, the recent Rider projects were the three movies, which were interesting but kind of weird, and then Black RX, which you officially weren't supposed to like at the time, uh, but everyone would tell you to watch Common Rider Black. Yeah, Kamen Rider Black is, uh, for me, technically my first rider, uh, because when I was going through my sort of love-hate thing with Power Rangers um, and doing kind of research uh, into trying to get into the actual uh, Super Sentai episodes, I found out about this Kamen Rider thing, and there was a webpage that just had a, a list in pictures of the riders, and uh, Black was the first design that really stood out to me and kind of intrigued me. It was just like, you know, I kind of want to know more about this guy. And as it turns out, there was actually a, a small website who was doing a sub, uh, sub tokusatsu on uh, VHS. Uh, yeah, we're going way back here. Um, and had the first four episodes of Comrade Black sub. And this is basically right before anything about Kuga came out. Uh, so I actually uh, got that and uh, watched it. And I mean, I right away... It kind of, I think it, it, was, it was basically like if Sentai was a superhero team book, this is kind of like the solo hero book I wanted to read, uh, basically. Um, he, it, you know, he was a little, he seemed a little bit, a little bit Batman, a little bit Spider-Man kind of. Uh, but basically, I just, I really liked uh, the look of Comrade Black, I really liked the style of Comrade Black. Uh, Minami Kutaro, uh, Tetsuo Karada, he's very much one of those uh, protagonists that I think of when I'm thinking of the classic tokusatsu protagonist, you know, with the uh, jacket and the biker gloves and just kind of, you know, declaring, you know, he's going to fight for justice at the villains. And, you know, just, just that sort of image. Always wondering if something is a Gorgon plot. Yeah, er, yeah, everything's a Gorgon plot. <laughs> Could this be a Gorgon plot? <laughs> Um, at the same time, though, um, even as a big fan of it, I will also admit that in certain corners of the internet, Black does have a tendency to get uh, overhyped a little. Mm -hmm. um, it kind of raises expectations unfairly, I think. Well, from a certain point of view, from a certain period in the 80s to basically until uh, 2000, when the mm -hmm. Heisei writers come back, Black was kind of viewed as the only real writer show that got made. And I think that meant in internet fandom for a long time, you had kind of your elder generation of old bees who had all come, you know, Black was always a really important show to them, maybe the first writer show that they saw. And so they wanted, they wanted really hard to convey that to younger fans. Yeah. And I think especially now that we have Heisei Rider on every year, I mean... Black is kind of dated. It's it's cool and interesting, but in a lot of ways, it may not be what a modern fan thinks of when they think about Common Rider. Well, and part of that too is just the fact that Black was aired in other countries and had a huge impact on the childhoods of so many people that way. That's true. It aired in uh, I want to say it aired in the Philippines and in Malaysia. Um, yeah. I mean, like, I mean, I, I can't even list off like all the places that it aired. I think it also but, yeah. aired in South America. If but memory serves. Black is one of the reasons we have. Uh, uh, Satyria Garuda Bima, basically, uh, because Black was huge then. Um, you know, so, I mean, one of those guys grew up and basically just, you know, he wanted to produce a show like that, so. Mm -hmm. um, so, in talking about Black, I think what we decided that we wanted to do was not just do a show telling you that Black is great and you should watch it, and then you listen to us and you marathon Black in five days and you're just like, where is the plot in this thing? <laughs> yeah, what's the big deal? We don't, yeah. we don't want that. There's plenty of no, people no, no. on forums telling you to do that. We want to tell you why people tell you to watch Black. Why this show was such a big deal and why it was so important to an elder generation of fans. And the thing is, 
our generation of fandom, our Japanese counterparts, they're working on the shows now. Like, I think um, uh, Urobuchi, who wrote Gaim, listed Black as one of his really big influences. And it's really kind of obvious if you watch Gaim and then watch certain episodes of Black. Yeah, and when I heard about that, I was thinking, oh, great, you know, the next year's writer's going to be awesome. And then he gets stuck with the orange gimmick, and that was kind of sadness for me. Well, but but on the other hand, it meant he could build an entire series out of that one episode where Gorgum decides to build a mutant plant, which is pretty much what Gaim is. <laughs> be one way of looking at it, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's it's that's pretty much the story arc. Only there's not Black to come in and slap everyone around and tell them to knock it off. Um, probably uh, before we really get started. Um, it might be interesting to give a little bit of production background because one thing with Black is that it was a revival series. Um, there had been a couple of other attempts before that in the in the form of Skyrider and in the form of us. Uh, wait, wait, see, is it, it was Skyrider Super One and ZX? Yes, and there's yeah. a little bit of a gap I think between the ending of Super One and when the uh, Z Cross special yeah. airs. It's also important to note that uh, Z Cross doesn't get. A entire series. Um, it's basically a TV special, but there's also mm-hmm. manga and radio dramas attached to it too. And it's it's also very well known that Z Cross was supposed to get his own show, and there was some issue with the network at the last minute. Um, just kind of a way to nutshell it. Basically, if you're production staff during then, and you're trying to figure out, okay, how do we like present? you know, a common writer for the eighties, you know, eighties being today from their perspective, mm-hmm. uh, black is basically the point where they finally figured it out. And I think part of that is because common writer had been off the air. I think black starts airing in 87. The Z cross special is in 84. So there's been no writer on the air for three years. People haven't forgotten about writer, but they haven't been looking at it. And when a property goes away for a little while, then it means when you're going to bring it back, everyone can sit down and think about what do we want to change. Well, I mean, just look at what happened with Doctor Who. Yeah, Common uh, Rider Blacks. It it bringing Rider back, I think, is certainly comparable in terms of being a watershed cultural move moment and the kind of pressure that was on the uh, production staff. It's also it was made at a really interesting time in Toei's history because a lot of the founding talents who really built the genre up in the seventies. They were still around, and they were still able to work on the show. But this is also when uh, the generation of creators, I think, is kind of the second generation of, like, the big Henshin hero creators. That, this is when they're young and starting to cut their teeth. Um, I should also point out, it's really well known at this point that Kamen Rider Black's production had a lot of problems. Uh, because it's an older show... We don't know exactly what problems they were. Uh, We know the show was supposed to be written by Shozo Uehara. He writes the first four episodes in episode 12, and then he does not work on the rest of the series. As far as I can tell, the head writer for the rest of the series was uh, Noboru Sugimura, who uh, you probably, if if you listen to our Zhu Ranger show, we talked about him a lot. Because he wrote a lot of Sentai after he finished up with Black, and he came to Kamen Rider from working on uh, Metal Hero. Uh, The show goes through a phenomenal number of directors. It has like seven directors. The guy who directs the first episode, I think, doesn't direct any other episodes. It goes through ten writers, because there's very long periods where the plot doesn't really move. Kotaro's just running around having adventures, and a lot of those episodes are by writers who don't necessarily do a lot of uh, script writing. So when the plot moves in black, you tend to hit an episode where just tons and tons and tons of things happen. And then in other episodes, it'll just be, you know, a time-traveling Cobra mutant bring samurai from the past. <laughs> Admittedly, some of the gimmicks, like, okay, Black's got really cool monster designs in terms of doing just, like, organic monster designs. Like, And you have to think about this in the context of what Rider monsters had looked like up to that point. Um, you you kind of have, you know, you might have, like, a really cool-looking 
uh, beast mask, but then like you know the rest of their body is basically like you know spandex with like you know some funky armor bits or something like that. With black, they basically just go all in on it and just like you know you're like like if you have a uh, a rat monster, I mean he's a full rat monster suit. I mean he's he's just like a man sized animal. Um, now the gimmicks for the monsters didn't always necessarily jibe with what their beast was, but oh well. <laughs> yeah, to describe the look of Black's monsters, because it's, it's really different from the kind of look modern rider monsters have. Um, if you've seen a lot of 80s movies, and the cow, like, they would still use a guy in a suit for their creature effect, but it would be this extremely detailed suit with really yeah. realistic textures on the fur. Uh, that was the look Black was going for right. with, it, it, with its monsters. Yeah, it's really the kind of thing where you're looking at, you're thinking, okay, if they it had like a Spielberg budget, then basically the head would have been animatronic or you know something like that. But I mean, they couldn't afford that, but they definitely got you know some really good, really creepy looks out of these monsters. And it's really memorable because I think Black is really the only series that pushes for this look. Uh, I don't know if it's a thing where, you know, the times change and it wasn't in style anymore, or maybe it was just really expensive to do. Because yeah. when you watch Black, you'll notice they do a lot of things that just promptly stop when Ryder comes back in the Heisei era, uh, or at least there's much less of it. Like, there's tons of night shots in Black. There's tons of shots on location. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's lots of flying and green screen effects that had to be really expensive at the time. Yeah, there's a lot of certain shots and the way things are done that kind of echo what was going on in uh, some horror and sci-fi movies mm-hmm. of the period. Uh, I, I seem to remember in, like, episode two... There's something about when Kotaro is a, um, he when he finds the actress uh, that was on the boat uh, the night he and Nobuhiko had their their nineteenth birthday celebration. You know he finds her dead and she's you know got the claws in her neck. Something about it. I'm sure it was probably both influenced by a horror movie, but it was also kind of remind me of a little bit of like uh, the original Terminator. Mm-hmm. Too, and just the way the apartment was no, shot. No, there's there's know. a lot of James Cameron shots. Uh, there's one episode that reminded me a lot of certain shots from Nightmare on Elm Street that were considered yeah. really pioneering at the time. And there's there's a lot of a lot of shots really clearly influenced by uh, Sam Raimi's yeah. early work. I mean, you kind of get more of this in the first four episodes than you do necessarily throughout the rest of the series, but it does pop up. Uh, from time to time, you just kind of, you know, it, it, it won't be consistent necessarily through the entire episode, but you kind of, you see something in the way it looks. And if you're familiar with the source that inspired you, you, may, you might kind of be like, ah, I see what you did there. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, so Black is a very, um, it's it's very moody and atmospheric. Yeah, yeah. And that's good because the show's plot is very simple and isn't really addressed all the time. So why don't you yeah. go ahead and just hand out the basics of the plot. The basics of the plot are that you have uh, Manami Kotaro, who is actually um, a man who was adopted uh, as a child into uh, a rich family after his parents were killed. Um, and this, he has, basically his stepbrother is a uh, Nobuhiko... Oh gosh, what's Nobuhiko's last name? Of it doesn't family? matter. Yeah, I, man, it's, I'm completely blanking on that now. But basically... I can look it up, but it, it, it really yeah. doesn't matter. Um, Akizuki. You're right. That's yeah. It. Um. But anyway, but you know, they're basically uh, a wealthy family that takes him in. So he pretty much grows up. He and Obihiko are brothers, and on their 19th birthday celebration, things start to get a bit weird. And Kotaro basically finds out that his stepfather has been working for an evil organization called Gorgum this whole time. And he has basically ended up selling his sons out to this organization so that they can become uh, century kings. Uh, what this means, essentially, is that uh, both brothers have uh, king stones placed inside them, as well as like cybernetic augmentation and weird mystical powers added to them. I mean, it, it, it's kind of um, just general kind of weird, creepy stuff um, done to them. Uh, because the the point is that the um, they're supposed to basically battle each other to decide who will be the new century king. The century king 
being or socio sama, I think is what he's called mm-hmm. in, in mm-hmm. the Japanese. Um, they're supposed to battle out to decide who will rule uh, Gorgum's world of darkness once they have crushed uh, human culture forever um, and basically turned humans into uh, into monsters. And I believe the the implication is that this will be the thousand years of darkness. Exactly. Because when you're like black was black ran from eighty seven to eighty eight, so you're before the millennium, and this is when you start seeing as a major theme, like oh man, guys, the world is going to end soon because a big round number is coming. And I think that's why where the original writer stuff was big on uh, super science. And, you know, it's it's past World War II and we can make these terrible machines of destruction. Black gets into the occult and uh, the paranormal and people's irrational fears, which is why I think it, it helps the show so much that they can do so much night shooting and they can yeah. do all the really moody... And, like, technology is still a big part of it. I mean, because you know, when you look at Black, I mean, he, he has... Um, you know, very kind of, you know, his belt's very techy looking, mm-hmm. um, you know. Yeah, but he's, he's made by evil priests and not a scientist. Yeah, yeah there's a, there's a real sense of Gorgum basically being a cult as opposed to kind of the, um, kind of Nazi-esque organization mm-hmm. that Shocker was. And in a lot of the better filler episodes of Black... They really emphasize that what's terrible about Gorgum is that they get into people's heads and into their hearts and kind of make them betray other humans and just, you know, do anything, just do anything to get power. Yeah, and I think this also may be, and I might be reading too much uh, social commentary into it, but it seems like there's at least a little bit of a sense um, of making a comment on the uh, boom period that Japan itself was experiencing, kind of the idea that, you know, okay, you know, we have all this wealth, we have all this money, but, you know, where did that money come from and what was the price mm-hmm. for it? I think you that's know. fair because when you get into the late 80s in Japan, that's when I forget if either the bubble had started to burst or everyone knew the bubble would burst and they were just yeah. waiting for the other shoe to drop. But it was, that definitely would have been on people's minds. I think this is also when the early, when really early, the earliest references to the declining birth rate problem start uh, showing up. Um, So anyway, so um, both the brothers are basically turned into Kaizo Ningen. um, And Kotaro uh, manages to escape because he awakens, uh, actually no, his, um, his stepfather begins to regret what he has done. I mean, he's basically doing this kind of the thing of where he's try he he thinks he's doing this to sort of protect them because like once Gorgum takes over, he wants his sons to live. So he thinks the best way to do this is to actually, you know, go ahead and actually submit them for mm-hmm. this whole Well, uh, and thing. they would have great power in the organization and stand a better chance of surviving in Gorgum's terrible new world. But, you know, when the surgery is actually taking place, uh, uh, Kotaro's stepfather basically flips out and stops uh, the Gorgon priest in the middle of it. Kotaro manages to escape. Nobuhiko does not. Yeah, so the early part of the show is just Kotaro running around with the Gorgon priests pursuing him. And occasionally he'll worry about what happened to Nobuhiko. Uh, at episode 18, we get an arc villain... Uh, by the name of, uh, we're used to calling him Birginia. I think he's also called Bilginia now. Really? Yeah, I think it has to do, he's, he's based on a certain fossil. So I think Bilginia may actually be a little bit more correct, but I've called him Birginia for 20 years. So yeah, I've always gonna... seen it written as Birginia. So yeah, yeah, so I'm just, I'm just gonna keep doing that. Sorry, internet. <laughs> yeah, this guy shows up and he wants to... He wants to get himself into a position of power uh, while the Gorgon priests look bad because they can't get hold of, you know, Black Sun, which is what they call uh, Common Rider Black. Yeah, he's basically that archetype of the villain who's kind of there to troll the other villains. And shows up at the midpoint of the show uh, to kind of mix things up after the status quo has gotten a little stale. Uh, if you've watched 80s Sentai... Or even into early 90s Sentai. You've seen a million versions of this guy. And there's, you know, Birogini is not a bad one. 
Uh, he certainly improves the show a little bit from early on, where it's just done in ones. Yeah, I mean, there's even some fans who kind of prefer Birginia to Shadow Moon. I don't necessarily see that myself, but I could understand it from the perspective that technically Birginia gets to do more, at least physically, as far as mm-hmm. like you know having fights with Comrade Black than Shadow Moon does. But Shadow Moon has all the drama and the atmosphere and, and kind of mm-hmm. you know, every, everything you kind of want out well, of like the main villain. And like it, it's not Birginia's fault that he wears pink armor because the <laughs> the fossil he's based on that that appears to be its color. Really, but yeah. Uh, but he is, in fact, a man in salmon pink armor. And when you know Shadow Moon is coming, who has this incredibly impressive design, yeah. I mean, the actor does a really good job selling it. It can be a little hard to take Birginia seriously, but yeah. his big contribution... Especially before the face paint. <laughs> yeah, yeah. His big contribution to the plot is uh, obtaining this red sword called uh, the Satan Saber. Yes, it's that, actually called the Satan Saber. Yeah, well, they say, Satan Saber, you know, but it is is the Satan Saber. And it is, like, having it gives you, like, some connection to the evil Creation King's power. And when Shadow Moon is awakened by the Gorgon Priests, who are kind of sick of having Birginia kick their teeth in, I believe he... Actually, did... is, is it Century King or Creation King, or are both valid? I think he's referred to both ways. Okay. Um... And I, I also might have just misspoke there the okay. way the way you well no like I think it. I think I've seen it even subbed as Creation King before but I've also seen it as Century King several times too yeah I think they may just use both okay as far as I know okay anyway when uh, the Gorgon priests awaken Shadow Moon because they're tired of Birginia kicking their teeth in I think Shadow Moon and Birginia immediately have a pretty memorable fight over who holds the uh, Satan saber it's. <laughs> Funny thing, like from what I remember, the series, and feel free to correct us if we're wrong on any of this. It's been, it, it's we've seen it several times, but it's also been a, a little bit of a while since last. It's time. been about three months since we watched the final yeah. episode, and just because of real life scheduling, we could not record the episode before this. So. Yeah, um, but anyway, if I remember right, Birgini and Shadow Moon don't necessarily have an actual fight so much as Birginia basically has Comrade Black on the. On the ropes. This is basically going to be Birginia's moment of glory. And then the the Satan Sabers kind of whisked away from him. Yeah. You know, and, and it goes to Shadow Moon. And so he basically shows up and be like, you know, kind of like, you know, hey, Shadow Moon, you have my sword. And Shadow Moon punks him. Yeah. He just straight up punks him. And... If you're kind of getting a... I didn't say it was a longer dramatic fight. Yeah, yeah. I just said violence happened. <laughs> well, like, okay, to a degree, I kind of view Birginia as, like, Starscream to Shadow mm-hmm. Moon's Megatron. So the scene where Shadow Moon takes him out is kind of satisfying on the level of Megatron becoming Galvatron and blowing Starscream away in Transformers the movie, the 86 animated movie. Like, yeah, because I, I believe Birginia <laughs> honestly believes that if he can get the, the uh, Satan Saber and master its power, he can somehow become the Creation King. Yeah. Even yeah. though he does not, even though he's not Black Sun or Shadow Moon. Oh yeah, I mean he, you know, again, kind of in keeping with that archetype of the villain mm-hmm. who's there trolling the other villains. Yeah, he, he, he really wants very badly to be uh, the big boss. He thinks he deserves to be the big boss. He can't understand why the hell he's not already the big mm-hmm. boss. You know, and this goes, I mean, you can even see this with like, you know, Desaad and Darkseid, you know, in, in the DC universe sometimes too. It's a, it's a really old archetype for villains. Yeah. yeah, there's a, I recall there being a pretty interesting scene where I think he's talking to the current creation king uh, when he gets the Satan Saber. And the Creation King, he says some things where, at least the way I took it, it was sort of implying that Birginia's only role in all this was just to bring the Satan Saber to Shadow Moon. But because Shadow Moon is so evil, he can't just walk over and get a sword. He has to kill a guy and take the sword, and that's the only way he can get the Satan Saber. Essentially, kill, kill him and effectively humiliate him. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and um, the most popular part of the show... Is when Shadow Moon takes over as villain, which, mm. uh, episode 35 or 36 is where that happens. 
he transforms the Gorgon priests who have almost killed themselves to... To revive Shadow Moon because... Gosh, okay, I'm, I'm a little hazy on the specifics of it at the moment, but basically... Um, the process of sh- of basically getting Shadow Moon to the point where he's functional, there, um, it has something to do with his Kingstone and something to do with some kind of lack of energy that it has. And there are a couple of times leading up to this where they tried different schemes to try to to power um, his Kingstone enough to essentially awaken him, but they they can't quite do it. So ultimately, the Gorgon priests. You know, basically in in desperation and just after like several defeats from Kamen Rider Black and just uh, the Creation King getting more and more pissed off about it, they uh, they have stones that they wear that are essentially tied to their life force somehow, and they sacrifice those stones in order to finally awaken Shadow Moon. Um, in doing so, they basically it's like they start to wither, um, you know, to the point where they're almost literally disintegrating, and but then they. Uh, evolve into these uh, Grand Kaijin forms. They're called like Grand Mutants. Grand Mutants, excuse me. Yeah. Um, And that's where you kind of get uh, Bishimu um, or Bishim. Bishim. Bishim, excuse me. Yeah. Their names are really hard to pronounce and two of them sound almost exactly the same. Yeah, there's Baraam and Daram. And Daram, yeah. So I might butcher the pronunciations throughout this entire podcast. Please forgive me, Internet. Uh, but anyway, uh, Bisham kind of becomes almost like sort of a succubus looking, uh, you know, she's got like, you know, bat wings and like huge white hair and, you know, kind of, that's sort of her form and, uh, Darum, uh, becomes sort of like a tigerish thing with long tusks and then, um, Barum, who is sort of like the leader of the three, uh, who had like weird telekinetic powers? He ends up becoming some some kind of bug that I'm not entirely sure of. I think you have what Darum and Barum come reversed. I think oh. Darum becomes like a bug, and Baraam becomes the more okay, okay. like yeah, nasty, nasty, furry thing. Yeah. Now these forms, I always thought it was a little weird because when you're watching the first episode and you see Darum or Daraam. Uh, doing surgery. It's just Darum. Darum. It's Bara okay. Alm and Darum. Oh, God, I'm going to mess that up through this entire thing. Okay, uh, Dara Alm is doing surgery on uh, Manami Kotaro to, to uh, place his kingstone in. He reveals his arm, and it's this very arachnid looking sort of thing. Uh, and then anytime you see uh, Bara Alm's arm, it's. It looks like a machine. It looks like he's. He might be like a robot underneath. He even has kind of a, mm-hmm. you know, almost, almost like kind of plastic looking face, um, or armored looking face is what I'm trying to say. Um, so, I don't know, I, I always thought their monster forms seemed a little incongruous with what they were hinting at them being in earlier episodes. But it may completely be that due to what was going on with production, that the uh, the, the grand mutant forms were a bit of an afterthought. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, even when watching them in the show, it kind of comes off as like, well, maybe instead of just killing the priests, we'll let them turn into monsters and then we'll have some more recurring villains for Black to fight. Well, I mean, and it does give basically some bosses for Katara to go through before he finally has his fight with Shadow Moon. Yeah, and I think that's why the last... Uh, it's it's the last 16, 16 odd episodes of the show... Uh, there's a much higher feeling of intensity than in the early episodes. And I'm not saying the early episodes are bad, but one of the big mistakes people make when it's like, I'm going to see Kamen Rider Black, is they go watch it all at once. And if you watch the beginning of the show, I think just back to back to back, it's going to get a little mind-numbing because they're just kind of repetitive done-in-ones. Well, and you, well, first of all, anytime you're watching a tokusatsu from that era or further back, you just have to generally keep in mind... The idea of anybody marathoning these things just is not something that figured into the production because it wasn't really that possible to marathon them. So, I mean, it, it, we're basically talking about weekly TV. Uh, so it's it's episodic storytelling. It, it, there's not 
a lot of emphasis on overarching plots and how like one episode relates to another relates to another. It's just kind of giving you your bang for your buck every week. You know, you tune in, you watch it, you have fun, you move on. Um, so, I mean, it's really not until uh, the invention of home video really gets going and going strong that you start to have longer narratives that play out over the course of several mm-hmm. episodes with little details being added. It's more that you kind of have a structure for episodes and you kind of bounce different things off of your off of your premise. And then there might be a runner that goes kind of throughout the entire series and then it, you know is it occasionally dealt with from time to time, but it's not necessarily the big thing that is always the focus every single time. That said, like if you do like to marathon shows, I think the last third of Black holds up to it pretty well because you have like the four really powerful villains. Um, so there's a lot, and and they all recur. Mm. Um, it's not really easy to predict when the Grand Mutants will actually kind of make their their big move against Black. Uh, there's some other kind of unpredictable things that happen toward yeah. the end of the show. So I think that does hold up, but the first part of the show where not much is happening because the writing staff is in turmoil, uh, if you speed through that, I, I think it, 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 I've seen it sour some people. Yeah. Well, and also, too, there's just a simple fact that the done-in-one episodes, some of them are really, really, there's, they're, they're fun, solid episodes to watch, and then there's others that just don't really hold together that well. You know, and there's a kind of a long stretch of them, so there, there's a kind of no way they're all going to be created equal, basically. Now, uh, I asked Twitter some questions about what they'd want us to talk about. So, we're about halfway through the show. Let's see what they have asked us for. Uh, I know one thing that we were asked to talk about uh, is how Common Rider Black has two bikes. <laughs> okay, I, I'm, I'm probably going to start this out by saying, yes, Comrade Black has two bikes. He has Battle Hopper, which is actually a uh, sentient or semi-sentient bike uh, that was given to him by Gorgum. It's basically the bike he was designed to have. It's essentially his uh, steed as, you know, uh, Gorgum always refers to him as Black Sun, but he takes on the name Common Rider Black. Um Kind of as a, you know, he's kind of like declaring that like, you know, no, I am not the weapon you created me to be. I am, I am something else. I'm going to stop you. And calling himself Common Rider is sort of related to that. The show never necessarily specifies whether or not it is itself in continuity with the show a series, even though they sort of address that later in RX. But uh, basically the idea is that, you know, by declaring himself Common Rider, he's declaring himself a hero. Um, but anyway, when Gorgon is talking about him, they're talking. They were always referred to him as Black Sun, Black Sun Shadow Moon. Uh, so Battle Hopper is uh, the bike that was designed to be ridden by Black Sun. There's another bike that comes along in Episode Twelve called the Road Sector. Road Sector was invented by Gorgum uh, to basically be a uh, machine to be used for uh, Gorgum soldiers, like a fleet of Gorgum soldiers, um, and it was. It was made by a scientist named Yuichi Daimon. It has an attack shield, and it can actually uh, perform a special ramming maneuver. Um, it was also the plot of the episode that brings Road Sector in is actually pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've never liked the design, and I, you know, Battle Hopper not only looks cool, but I think just Battle Hopper is cool. Maybe because of his implied sentience, I don't know. Battle but, Hopper you know. really comes off as a character. There's a lot of episodes where Battle Hopper will, like, attempt to sacrifice himself to help Black, or will run to Black's rescue. He's kind of <laughs> like if your bike could also be your dog and your faithful steed. Well, yeah, and that, I think that's the thing. To some extent, Kamen Rider's bike has always been kind of like his, you know, trusty steed, almost in this kind of Lone Ranger and Silver or uh, Zoro and Toronado sense. So having the bike have some implied sentience just sort of like takes it to like the next step. And it's an idea that some might think it's kind of goofy. I think it's a has a certain charm to it if it's, you know, done well. 
And I'm kind of surprised they haven't revisited that more often, especially in Fies with Otto Vagin, because I think that would have been a perfect opportunity to revisit that idea. Yeah, I just wonder if that's something that's associated so much with Black that it it doesn't feel like a general common writer trope. You maybe, can, you maybe. You can do every year. Because yeah. every... Because, I mean, Battlehopper is so popular, I think he survives into Black RX. Technically, he does. Yeah, I mean, technically. Yeah, he... Uh, but he... That's, that's that's more <laughs> technically than Kyoko or Kasumi. Uh, oh, yeah. Actually, I don't think we haven't we've really mentioned them. Okay, Kotaro's uh, supporting cast, uh, with, I mean, a few exceptions here and there, basically consists of Kotaro's adoptive... Uh, well, actually, Nobuhiko's girlfriend, I think, and then uh, Kyoko uh, Kasumi, and then Kyoko is is Kyoko Nobuhiko's um, sister. That's a good question. Like, I don't remember. I mean, the thing is, they don't actually do very much in the show. Yeah. They're like the girls that they care about. <laughs> okay, Kyoko is Nobuhiko's younger sister. Yeah. Um, so. Now you kind of get into like some weird, um, you know, things here because there's kind of like somewhat of an, an implied like attraction there, even though my technically... little sister not related by blood. Uh, yeah, yeah. Which you know <laughs> we're not going to get into like that debate necessarily, but at the same time, it's not like a major focus of the show. Uh, but basically, the two girls, which is kind of interesting that his entire supporting cast is basically you know two girls as mm-hmm. opposed to. Because uh, they kind of introduce a Tachibana Tobe type, and then he's hardly ever around. Yeah, he's uh, an FBI agent who seems like he's going to be a supporting character and is in all of two episodes. No, no, okay. The FBI agent character is actually meant to remind one of uh, Taki Kazuya. Mm-hmm. Their Tachibana Tobe character, remember Tachibana Tobe is... Like yeah, a, I know who he is. Yeah, um, okay, that character is basically the owner of a coffee shop... Oh, he's the owner of the coffee shop that they work at that eventually yeah. is just never there. Yeah, exactly. He's just like, okay. well, you guys run the shop. And then, like, I think he appears in, like, one other episode after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I think the only other recurring non-monster characters is uh, Black tries to acknowledge the idea of the Rider Shonen tie, which is that there's a bunch of little kids that like Common Rider and kind of help him out. They do it in a really weird way, because I think they're all, like, they were little kids who were experimented on, but they're not really little kids. They're all, like, 30. Well, I think they had been experimented on, like, a long, long time ago. They finally make their escape from Gorgon, but, like, they're, they're kind of stuck in the bodies of little boys, but they're also, like, you know, trained combat soldiers. Yeah, so we actually see these 10-year-olds doing some black op stuff. <laughs> in certain episodes. Yeah. And I, I can tell what they're going for, but I, I, it's one of the few things in Black I think just did not work at all. Yeah, I, you know, maybe they're just like, okay, we'll, we'll do sort of a grimdark take on the Shonen Rider tie. Mm-hmm. But, you know. Well, because I, I think, are, are the Shonen Rider tie in the first series or, the, or in V3? I, I remember them um, from V3. Okay, they're... They're in the first series. Um, I think they may be a little bit of a bigger thing in... Um, V3, but the the basic idea is just like, you know, yeah, there's there's a club of kids that form around the fact that just they, they think Kamen Rider is awesome. And they have like, you know, rider hats. Mm-hmm. And, they, and, and the idea is that basically, it's almost like a neighborhood watch thing. Basically, if they see something suspicious, they report back to Tachibana Tobe so that he can let Kamen yeah, Rider know what's so going on. I'm sure the idea of like the Gorgum Shonen tie was how how can we make it plausible that these little kids keep up with the dangerous things that Common Rider does? But like if you make those characters plausible and make them tiny thirty year old men, um, <laughs> they're not really uh, wish fulfillment figures for the target audience anymore. They're just really sad, pitiable victims yeah. of body horror. Which, I mean, I think the episodes they're in, I mean, they they kind of work if you don't think about the premise too hard. Um, you know, and just dramatically, at least. Yeah, well, just, just in terms of, like, you know, establishing terrible shit that Gorgum does to people, mm-hmm. you know. Also, to be fair, the, the Gorgum Shonen Tide don't show up a lot. They have, yeah. like, two or three episodes. Well, and I, I think maybe some of that, too, might just even be, you know, this is, an epi- this is an idea that, you know, has some merit to it, but maybe we don't need to, like have it around all the freaking time, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, so uh, one question. Do you feel it would have made a difference if Shozo Uehara, the first writer who did mm. the first four episodes, mm. had stayed for the entire show? You know, that's a good question, and it's it's difficult to say. Uh, well, I guess it's you know, difficult to you know, predict that alternate Earth where you know, he, he didn't leave the show. I think it's plausible that the narrative would have been tighter throughout the entire series. I also think it's plausible that the way the show feels in its first four episodes probably would have stayed more consistent throughout than what it actually did. Mm -hmm. And I think you would have had a more smooth and steady progression of the story instead of, like, Kotaro will remember Nobuhiko is missing... And then forget about it for six episodes. And then remember Nobuhiku's missing again. And then it's like <laughs> ten more episodes before he actually does anything about it. Yeah, uh, I think Shadow Moon probably would have shown up a lot earlier. Because I get an impression when I watch the early episodes of Black uh, that the conflict between the two brothers was something that was really supposed to define the entire series much more than it did. I mean, it's possible that basically Shadow Moon might have shown up around the time that Birginia does in the actual show. I know I've seen or, theories that Birginia may have been a stopgap character. Yeah. Either created because they needed to mark some time before Shadow Moon could show up for some reason. I've also seen the theory that like there was some kind of problem with the actor who played Nobuhiko, and they kind of had to write him out. And this is this is all very unconfirmed stuff of rumor. Uh, my feeling is that Birogenia is around for such a long time. I think this guy was probably always meant to be in the show. Maybe not exactly the way we saw him. But I, I have a really hard time imagining a version of the show where we get to Shadow Moon mm. without going through that goon first. Yeah, I mean, it's possible that maybe they would have had like uh, maybe a shorter kind of Monster of the Week period than there would have been a period where Birigenia is kind of the main villain and mm-hmm. then Shadow Moon would have trashed him and then it would have been, you know, the uh, Black versus Shadow Moon show for like the rest of the series or something. It, it's it's hard to say. Yeah, uh, here's a good question. Do you think Black started the trend of all the grimdark toku that popped up in the 90s with things like Live Man and Jet Man? I would, hmm... Without knowing a lot of specifics about exactly what was going on with Japanese culture at the time, suffice it just from like seeing a lot of the anime that I kind of was exposed to uh, from the 80s and just, you know, little bits and pieces of things that I found out. I would say there was some trend of that in entertainment going on anyway, and Black's popularity with the public might have contributed to that, but I wouldn't necessarily lay that entire thing at the Mm -hmm. feet of Black. My feeling is that Black was riding a wave in Japanese pop culture. That's kind of what I was trying to get across, yeah. That was happening anyway. I mean, you can point to, like, Bioman or certain things in early Metal Hero. Yeah, Sentai was kind of going in a more dramatic Mm -hmm. direction. I mean, like, okay, when you're talking online, you can people say, oh, well, 80 Sentai was more serious. That's not entirely accurate, because it's kind of like, you know, because I think for a lot of people, if you say, like, oh, 80s Toku was more serious, they're thinking, oh, it was like a Chris Nolan movie. No, no, that's Mm -hmm. not not what... On the other hand, I mean, it's, you know, Change Man is certainly... There's a lot more grit there than in the average episode of, like, Tokyuger. Exactly, mean, yeah. And I think that's really the the difference that people are trying to talk about, but, like, mm-hmm. it kind of gets muddied in discussion mm-hmm. a lot. I will say, like, when you get into the mid and late 80s in Japan, there's a real fad for uh, what you might call grimdark in- entertainment that's really going through all of the sci-fi and fantasy, you know, equivalents uh, in, in Japanese pulp. Because, like, if you're familiar with anime from this period, like, this is when um, Ryosuke Takahashi, who does, like, these very dry, gritty war dramas, that's when he was big. Uh, Zeta Gundam yeah. aired, uh, I think, 85, 86. 
Well, and think about like all the anime OAVs that were out at the time. You know, mm-hmm. they, they, they were kind of delving in like you know darker stuff than what like the seventies anime on TV. Well, had dealt because with. Uh, the OVA, uh, the entire idea of doing like film, like like actually isn't Akira like made around the time as black, and that was considered a big watershed. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that's just that's what sold. And then when what sold changed, Toei made something else. Because remember, America was going through that too. Yeah. You know, I, I think, I mean, America is still kind of harping on it uh, in some places to like excessive degrees, but that's kind of... Well, I think in the U.S., like you sort of had the early grimdark comics and films, <laughs> and then it sort of turned into how far can we take this Right. until... I feel like it's been in like maybe the past 10 years people have started kind of getting sick of it. The cracks are finally starting the show and and I I'm I'm kind of glad of that because I mean I think it, like I completely understand when you sort of like get away from some genres being thought of almost exclusively in camp terms but at the same time it's it's kind of trading one extreme for the other. Mm-hmm. So in, in my yeah. opinion anyway. So Whereas, like, for Japanese pop culture, you know, because the grim, Grimdark kind of comes and goes in cycles. Like, by the early 90s, it was really cheerful stuff. Yeah, they kind of cycled through it, you know. Mm-hmm. And then Evangelion happened, and everyone wanted dour stuff again. And I think we're we're on a big cheerful upswing right now. Yeah. And eventually that it would will cycle out. would seem to be out. the case anyway. Yeah. Probably. Okay, so uh, one good question. Uh all, do you still cry when you think of the ending of *Common Rider Black*? <laughs> I, the ending actually is very emotional. Um, I mean, for starters, I feel really bad for Whale Kaijin. I mean, you know, he, he was the Gorgomon. He didn't want to hurt nobody, and you he, know, was, he he was just very afraid Gorgon was going to pollute the ocean. Well, right, yeah, and you know, Kataro helps him back to his oceans, and you know, but then, you know. Will Kaijin returns the favor, um, you know, by helping, basically helping Kotaro back from death. Uh, but he meets a really brutal end. So, I mean, it's like, okay, that by its, that's kind of sad for starters. And that's even before you get into the actual, like, brother versus brother conflict mm-hmm. and how that ends up as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, no, the ending of Common Rider Black is very, it's, it's very sad. It's not the kind of sad where, like, I cry when I get to it. It's just when you think about it, it's really melancholy. Yeah. Like, I think the ending of Black really sums up the uh, lonely common Rider trope really well. Like, yeah, the, uh, the okay, we should have talked about the music at some point. But anyway, uh, okay, long, long ago, 20th century, you know, always plays mm-hmm. in the ending. And you kind of have that shot of, like, common Rider Black walking by himself, you know, towards the camera. You know, and it kind of creates, you know, this kind of certain mood. And, well, the ending kind of has that mood, too. Mm-hmm. And it, it's basically, it's it's the bitter, it's a um, kind of the bittersweet victory where, like, you know, the hero succeeds in saving the world from this terrible evil. But the one <clears throat> person that he wanted to save the most, he can't. Um, and basically, and it's kind of like the last piece of his old life that he had is gone. Um, and he's kind of, I mean, especially once Kyoko and Kasumi have escaped Japan after Gorgum have essentially taken over. Um, yeah, and, and they don't show them reuniting with Kotaro. They don't, yeah. Ever. Yeah. And... Which, I, <laughs> just as an aside, one of the things that torques me off about Black RX is they don't establish what the heck happened to Kyoko and Kasumi. I mean, they weren't necessarily strong characters, but at the same time, they were Kotaro's family, and I kind of would like to at least get some sense that Kotaro at least knows where they are and has reunited with them on some level or reconnected at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that's just me being a fan. Uh, but yeah. anyway... <laughs> um. We'll talk a little bit more about Black RX in a minute. I'll say if you just set Black RX aside and assume yeah. it didn't happen, I right. think the ending of Black is very close to perfect. Yeah. Uh, he wins, he saves Japan, but the cost to him personally is tremendous. Yeah. Either literally or metaphorically, he has lost everything he ever loved. And all he has is being common Rider. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's kind of funny. I know we're sitting here thinking about it. I'm just kind of like, wow, I think I'm actually getting a little bit emotional myself. But, yes, it's very, you know, it, it's it's beautifully sad. 
very good. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not sad any like you know, okay, this is a thing that's going to beat you over the head with a grim dark ending because it's the hero does have his victory. It just it, you know it it really does come at a price, and you feel you know you kind of want there to be something for the hero himself, you know, some measure of you know happiness because he you've seen him go through all this crap. And, you know, you kind of want there to be something for him. And the ending kind of leaves you, you know, he, he he's going on. He's going on to somewhere. He's going on with his life somehow on some level. But the pieces of his old life have all been shattered. Uh, now, to talk about Black RX, uh, the week, I, I think it started like the week after Black ended or very soon after it. Yeah. But Black RX is a sequel series that... Uh, picks up the adventures of Minami Kotaro after. I think it's like uh, I want to say it's like a, a couple of years or maybe one year after mm-hmm. the events of the finale. Yeah, and he gets uh, slightly different powers. He gets a different suit. He hangs around with a Japanese family he's never met before. Uh, and Black RX is very much its own show, and we'll talk about it in depth if we ever do a show about it. But the pertinent question here is. Do you think RX was always intended to be a sequel, or was it going to be its own show that got reworked into a sequel? It was going to be its own show that got reworked in, uh, into a sequel. Um, unfortunately, I can't cite a source on this. Um, There's a lot of evidence of this uh, yeah. floating around on the internet. Enough- right. I've, just, I've seen it in several places. But basically, having Kotaro again be the main protagonist was essentially an 11th hour decision. And that's why... You know, they have to kind of shoehorn in certain things. It's why Kyoko and Kasumi don't come back. We just never know what happens to them. And Shadow Moon has a return episode, even though it doesn't really make sense. But, I mean, again, that's also much farther along into uh, Black RX's actual series run. So, And by that point, they've already, you know, plainly established that Kotaro is still the protagonist and yada yada. So... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it kind of has no bearing on whether or not that was a eleventh hour decision. Yeah, I've I've never found Black RX as compelling as Black, and I feel like it's just the issue where Black was clearly in development for uh, for a number of years, and they had time to kind of work out the kinks and figure out what they wanted to make. Black RX to me always just really felt like, wow, this Black thing is really popular. We need to get you know we uh, need to get something else on TV. We need to you know keep doing this Kamen Rider thing. And it's it's not terrible. I've certainly seen worse shows. It just doesn't feel like any kind of natural extension of the thing that it's supposedly uh, being a sequel to. And it's and its its tone doesn't really work uh, as an extension of Black. There's a lot of things it just doesn't it doesn't work as, as an extension of Black. Um, but I think one of the reasons this is just kind of a you know this is me off the cuff here, but one of the reasons I think people do are willing to accept it as an extension of black is because I think coming off that ending and just knowing that Minami Kotaro's life did go on, he found some other friends, he found some other people to be with, and he also you know he kind of answers the call to justice once again. Even after all the crap he had been through before, just the world needs him again and he answers the call. I mean, that's, you know, I can appreciate that. I mean, like, even with all my problems with Black RX as a sequel to Black, I can go, I still enjoy Tetsuo Karada in that part. Oh, yeah. And, and that's kind of, that's the saving grace of Black RX, I think, is basically just, you know, how awesome uh, Tetsuo Karada is in that role. And it's kind of like, you know, if you like... Manami Kotaro, and you kind of want to see his life go on in any respect, and also just see him do, like, you know, kick-ass hero stuff again, then, yeah, I mean, Black RX can kind of work for you on that level, even though it really doesn't jive with Black at all. Yeah, like, I mean, it, it's funny, even before Decade literally did this, I just thought yeah. of them as happening in different dimensions. <laughs> Black happened yeah. over here, and Black yeah. RX was on, like, yeah. Earth 2. Uh, my, like, fanfic idea for that was always, you know, like, okay, Black is his base form, and then like he some somehow achieve he can, you know, upgrade to RX and Robo Rider and all that stuff. I think there's know. a recent movie where he's almost literally <laughs> done that. 
Yeah, I haven't seen like a lot of the big dumb crossover movies uh, that have been out lately. So yeah, but it's it's so logical. Like I think yeah. there are I, there are some basic concepts in Black RX that mm-hmm. are appealing mm-hmm. uh, as the idea of you know, and then and then Kotaro's life got better. Where if, if people like it, I certainly won't fault them. Yeah. Just for me, Black had fifty one episodes and it ended. Yeah. And yeah, it had its sad, bittersweet ending, but you know, our hero rode off into the sunset of justice and you know. <laughs> yeah, and I think that covers everything we were gonna talk about uh, for this show. I mean, honestly, Black is one of those shows I could probably talk about all day, but I don't think anybody's gonna want to listen to like a seven hour babbling uh, pod- podcast, so we'll probably just uh, wrap it up here. Yeah, we'll do do our usual <laughs> hour, uh <laughs> oh, do you want to talk about the uh, the music before we sign off? Oh, yes, yeah. Um, one thing I really I have an affection for when it comes to Kamen Rider Black is its soundtrack, particularly the BGM uh, for the show. Um, it's funny because, I mean, I really love Kamen Rider Black's theme, but my favorite version of the theme is actually not the one with the vocals. It's actually the BGM version that often plays... In some of the fights, like, you know, especially like right after or right as uh, Kotaro is transforming. Um, also, like the Gorgum's uh, theme. Uh, there's a lot of like other themes and they all have kind of you know, there's one called battle. One's called attack. I mean, you know, just, they're all for like specific moments or types of moments in the show. But uh, Black has a really cool soundtrack. It also has some really cool insert songs. Some of them, some of them are goofy, but then some of them are just like really awesome and right on. And Comrider Black is actually one of my favorite Comrider opening themes of all time. You know, I still get pumped up listening to it now. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the composer for the show was Eiji Kawamura, who is a composer who did a lot of toku and anime and similar type things in the late '80s. Um, very ironically, if you're in our age bracket and you watched the BioBooster Armor Giver OVAs, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, Eiji Kawamura also composed the music for, uh, that. <laughs> that that's very fitting, actually. Uh, I think he also composed the music for, uh, Zeo Rhymer, and if you ever noticed that it sounds really similar to certain Black and Black RX pieces, that's why. <laughs> and also, uh, oh, actually, uh, long, long ago, 20th century... Happens to be my favorite in theme to anything. Um, I watching like a tokusatsu or anime. Um, I kind of like it when you have sort of the really um, kind of you know pumped up uh, opening song and then having kind of like you know the sad ending song. And my favorite iteration of that is long, long ago, twentieth century. That's only gotten better because the twentieth century is now literally a long, long ago. So it now it is actually sad. Yes, <laughs> that's fine. Tetsuo Karada has his steakhouse. So <laughs> yes, actually, for those of you who don't know, uh, the actor Tetsuo Karada does own his own steakhouse in Japan called Billy the Kid, mm-hmm. um, and he actually serves Kamen uh, Rider Black and Black RX themed dishes. <laughs> yeah, so as as far as I'm concerned, Minari Kotaro opened a steakhouse. Uh, and so makes, in continuity, he yes, has, he has yes, a steakhouse. Yes, yes, he, he has a fine, humble living. And maybe one day Kyoko and Kasumi will find him there because they've lived in America and they want, and they want steaks now. <laughs> I always had this, just as like a weird crossover fanfic, I always wanted it to be a thing where like, Kyoko and Kasumi hire, hire a Shotaro from Double to find <laughs> Minami Kotaro. And then, like, that's how their team-up happens. <laughs> that would be fun. Certainly not be the worst thing in the world. Okay, well, that concludes this quarter's episode of Low Visibility. Uh, if you have any comments, you can certainly leave a comment on the post. Uh, what was the other way they could send us comments? Uh, well, there, uh, you said Twitter. Uh, yeah, we don't have a Twitter for the show anymore, but no. you can find me on Twitter at yeah. link at linksera v three. Uh, we still have our email of it, our email address. It's, yes, it's, it's lowvisibility yeah. at uh, gmail dot com, which I swear we actually check sometimes, even though we forgot what it was. <laughs> it does happen. <laughs> uh, yeah, and we'll be back again in three months, and then we'll be discussing Die Ranger. Yeah. 
thank you folks for uh, listening to our podcast, whether you're just uh, catching us uh, now or you've been listening to us as long as we've had our extremely sporadic podcast in existence. Uh, we appreciate y'all. Uh, take care. Good night, Internet. <laughs> <laughs>